singing, and uh, as our other campuses and venues join us, I, uh, I, I want to say Happy Thanksgiving, but it's December 1st, so I guess we're moving on to Merry Christmas, and you know, the biggest change in this room, at least for me, some of you don't notice it, and the other campuses and venues don't, is that uh, they've changed my entire stage, and they, they have this large extension here that goes out into the congregation. I feel like I'm at a Garth Brooks concert, actually, is what I do, and I, I, I'm a, I have the, about the girth of Garth Brooks, too, and so I, I could be here, but I... I don't know, it's just weird for me. So I'm going to stay actually back here and uh, let them use that for Winter Wonder. I hope you got tickets to it. Uh, I don't know if there are any more. There probably are a few, but it's our largest outreach of the year. Kim and I have invited many friends and uh, we'll be inviting neighbors that don't know the Lord to come. And uh, some have been coming year after year. They just love it that much. And, And again, we bathe it in prayer that as we present kind of a festive Christmas entertaining, you know, package, but then wrap it up very profoundly with the nativity story and then the gospel message in about 10 minutes. It's a, uh, it's truly a no cringe event uh, for your lost friends and neighbors, but also one uh, that has the impact as God's spirit uses it to draw people into a relationship with Jesus. So be praying for Winter Wonder, and, and I hope again that you participate with us as well. Uh, We're starting a new series today, uh, a four-week series that will lead us up to Christmas uh, out of John chapter 17. I'll tell you more about that in just a second here, but I think it'll be a profound time for you and me and and our spiritual growth as we enter into this season trying to draw closer to Jesus as we uh, look to him. So let's do this. Let's bow and pray, and then we got some work to do in his word. Father God, I thank you for the worship that we have experienced over the last half hour that hopefully has prepared our minds and our hearts to now focus on your word. Lord, that's been the point of worship for thousands and thousands of years, to prepare God's people to be in the presence of God and now interact with his truth. So we want to do that with you, God. We want to interact with your truth, this awesome, awesome prayer of Jesus is found in John chapter 17. So by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, each one of us individually and then collectively as a whole when it comes to who Jesus is and how we can connect more deeply with him. And I pray these things in his name and we all say together, amen. So let's start really, really honest today and and let's just deal with the elephant of the room as we start to look at this long prayer of Jesus and that is that most people today think prayer is rather boring. They really do. Most people think prayer is rather boring, at least until you need something from God, and then prayer is kind of exciting. But up to that point, it's rather boring. And as a result of this, how our culture has influenced even many Christians, I would argue that the average Christian today has a rather lackluster prayer life. And what I mean by that is that we just don't pray all that much at least compared to how much TV we watch or how much computer time we log in or how much time we spend at the gym, if you put it up next to that, when it comes to this idea of sitting down and talking with God, many Christians show by their actions today that they just don't see prayer as all that high or relevant of an activity. That we've kind of fallen into the world's view that it's rather pedantic and boring and more something for our grandmother than it is for us. 
I can remember when I first realized this, it was the year 1985. I'd been a Christian for just a few years. Man, I was flying high in my walk with God, just so excited about walking with him and how Jesus had changed me. And that year, 1985, a movie came out called Witness. It's going to date me, but it was a Harrison Ford film about a detective named John Book in the Philadelphia area. And the whole gist of the film is that he has to go into Amish country and blend in with the Amish in order to protect a witness. And so you have this rough, burly detective now living among the Amish. And at one point, there's a rather benign scene in this movie, but it really hit me hard because of my newfound Christian faith. There were a bunch of detectives back in Philadelphia talking about John Book living among the Amish. And at one point in this water cooler conversation, they said, can you imagine John Book at a prayer meeting? And they all laughed and said, you know, how could they even imagine something like that? And I remember seeing that in 1985 and thinking to myself, well, I'm running 10 miles a day. I'm 140 pounds. I, I'm very athletic. I'm excited about Jesus. And by the way, I like spending time at prayer meetings. It's not for the weak. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's for man's men and women's women. Uh, prayer meetings are where you actually do a lot of work with God. But I remember dialing at that time to how our world sees prayer and and yet how God wants me to see it. You see, here's what we're going to do this month here at our church. We're going to change the way that many of us see prayer. We're starting a series here today called God With Us, and it's based out of John 17. Now watch this. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all of the Bible or the Gospels. In other words, most of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, but this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer. And we're going to read every word of it. We're going to look at it from uh, multiple angles. And what you're going to see by the time we hit Christmas is how relevant and profound prayer can and should be as Jesus talks to his Father. And though much of this Christmas series is going to be about tracking the flow and content of Jesus' prayer here, in other words, we're going to be voyeurs into his prayer rather than participants, what we're going to do then in March of this next year is we're going to spend some time in the Lord's Prayer. It's all by design. We're going to spend some time looking at the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer and how we can and should pray on a more regular basis. So between now and next spring, we're going to blow the lid off of this idea that prayer is somehow boring and difficult, and it begins today by unpacking this very famous prayer of Jesus's called his high priestly prayer found in John 17. So no further ado, let's dive in. And what I want us to do today to start off kind of easy is tackle a a manageable bite-sized chunk out of this prayer. So we're going to read the first five verses and then make sense of them. And so this is what it says, John 17, verses 1 through 5. It says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me 
together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You know, it's amazing how uh, times and cultures change with different practices. It's fascinating how Jesus begins his prayer. Go back one screen here if we could, guys. It says, Jesus spoke these things and then lifting up his eyes to heaven. Isn't that kind of like the opposite of how you and I pray today? When you and I pray today, what we do is we kind of bow our head and fold our arms and praise like this. Jesus prayed by lifting up his eyes to heaven. And some people argue that he did that because he was the son of God and he could do that. That's bad theology. Not that he's the son of God, but that that's what's in play here. What's in play here is that Jesus, watch this, was adopting the common Jewish posture of prayer back then. See, they didn't fold their hands and look down. They looked up. Why? Because God's up there. God, the psalmist says, is in the heavenlies. He is way high above you and me. <coughs> Excuse me. So they were looking up to heaven as a sign of submission to God when they prayed. It's not wrong to look down and close your eyes and bow your hands. The point is, is that every culture develops certain postures of prayer to try to show submission to God. We have ours, they had theirs back then, but there's lots of different ways to do that. So Jesus assumes this common Jewish posture and he begins talking to his father. And when you look closely at this prayer, because it is chalk full of content here in the first five verses, I want you to notice four key things that Jesus says here about himself and his father and then you and me. And for the sake of ease, I put them up here on this whiteboard. It was easier than trying to fit it on our monitor. And I'm just going to give you a quick overview, kind of a flyover of what Jesus says in these first five verses here. Then we're going to put it together for our lives today. Notice that he begins, and we're going to kind of do reverse order because we're going to take it in more eternal chronological order. In verse 5, Jesus says to us that he was pre-existent with the Father. He says in verse 5, with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And so what Jesus is telling us there, and you don't want to miss this, is that he is and was eternal in nature. In other words, you've heard us say over and over again that Jesus is the Son of God or God the Son. This idea of the Trinity is not something we made up. It's what the Bible teaches us, that that God is of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them God, only one God, however, that's the mystery, but all of them eternally existing. And so for those of you who have wondered, where does it say that in the Bible? Jesus says it right here that I existed with you, Father, before the world even began. This is what Jesus is telling us in his prayer. Now, hang on to that and notice the second thing he says, and that is that as the preexistent, eternal Son of God, he was sent to this earth. He says in verse 3 there, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So theologians call this the incarnation, the fact of God, the Son, becoming a human being. We'll get more to that in a minute here, but that's the second thing Jesus tells us in this prayer, is that his eternal nature, but he became a man as God was sent to this earth. Then he tells us the third thing. Why was God sent to this earth? 
Well, to accomplish something. He says in verse 4, I have accomplished the work, Father, that you gave me to do. Now, what is that work that God sent Jesus to do on this earth? This is really important. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you will run into this concept called the atonement, which is simply a fancy $10 word for the fact that Jesus came to forgive us of all the things God has against us, forgive us of our sins so that we might be brought back into a right relationship with God. In other words, we have a problem with God. Our sin separates us from him. So Jesus was sent to this world to live a sinless life and then go to a wooden cross as a sacrifice for our sins and God put our sins on Jesus and that's what he came to accomplish, the forgiveness that we need. And then he says in this prayer, I told you it was rich, that when you add it all up, his eternal existence, sent to earth the incarnation, the atonement that he accomplished, that what this equals for you and me is life. He could not be more clear about this. He says in verses two and three that even as you may, he's given Jesus the authority to give eternal life. And then he says, and this is eternal life that they may know you. So I simply need you to notch away right now that life, eternal life is found in knowing God through Jesus Christ. This is life. God the Son, pre-existing and eternal nature, eternal nature, has been sent to this world as a man, but still fully God in incarnation. And then once he was here, he accomplished his purpose by dying the death that we should have died as an atonement for our sins. And he did all of this to display God's glory and God's desire that you and I might not just muddle our way through this world, finding a good job, maybe having a good maid, a few kids and a nice retirement. No, a lot more than that. He did it so that we might have life now and for all eternity. And that this life is found only in knowing God in a personal way through Jesus Christ. I want you to focus now. Let's drill down for a minute here on that small, almost easy to miss phrase in verse three of Jesus's prayer when he says this. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Focus on that little phrase, know you. In the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, this is the Greek word gnosko. And the reason that it's important you know that word is that we translate that word gnosko into the English today as to know. So it says that they may gnosko you, the only true God, to, to know you. And though that's a good translation, and just about every English translation will translate it to know, it's actually in the original Greek a bit more of a robust word than our English word to know. I need to explain this to you. Because you see, this word doesn't just mean to know something as in having information about something, as you and I might use this word today. No, no, no. It means to know something by experience. To know with all of your senses, mind, emotions, and will. 
So it doesn't just mean to have head knowledge about something, as we might use the word to know today. It means that you've actually experienced something in all and with all of who you are. And so it's not just head knowledge, it's experience that this is really after here. So what would be a good example? Here would be a great example that all of you can relate to. Say you and I are studying history, and as part of studying history, we have to read uh, four biographies of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was arguably one of, if not the greatest president our country has ever had. And after reading four biographies, you make a statement to me. You say, you know what? I feel like I, I know Abraham Lincoln. I feel like I know about his life and his presidency and, and who he was and where he's born, and, and I know Abraham Lincoln. And I would say, well, after reading four autobiographies, you're, you're probably right. But then in a further conversation, if you were to say to me a similar phrase, and it would be this phrase, that I would say to you, how is your marriage going? And you said to me, well, you know, after 30 plus years or 20 years, or however long you've been married, I feel like I really know my spouse. Let me ask you a question. Are you using the word no in different ways there? Or using the word no in the same way? Which is it? Different ways. Wake up, wake up. Different ways. <laughs> because you see, when I say, after reading four biographies of Abraham Lincoln, that I know Abraham Lincoln, what I really mean is, is that I know about Abraham Lincoln. I didn't experience Abraham Lincoln. I never touched him. I never met him. I never had a conversation with him. No, I'm using that word no in a factual sense. But conversely, if I say that I know my wife Kim, I mean that vastly different. I mean that after 32 years of marriage, I know what makes her tick. I, I, I know what she feels. I know what she thinks. I'm, I'm incarnate with her in very many ways. This is a different kind of knowing. And what you need to know is that the Bible here is using that word know in the latter sense. It's the difference between knowing about someone or something and then personally experiencing them. And in John 17 here, what Jesus is saying is that those who have eternal life know me in the sense of not just facts about me, but eternal life is in knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ that you have sent. And the reason, folks, if you haven't caught it already, that this distinction is so important, let's just be honest in the house of God today, is that there are many people today, even many nice church-going Christian people, who say, when I go through something like this, because I actually hear you almost say it, yeah, 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 I know I know he was pre-existent. I know there was an incarnation. I know that he died for my sins. And we say it in such a way as if that's good factual information, but it hasn't really changed our lives. Amen? I hear Christians say it in some sort of doctrinal, theological way, as if somehow it's up here. But here's what I wonder as your pastor, has it ever hit here? Has it ever gotten down into the guts of your life, even into your will? changing the way you make decisions and in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. In other words, I think Jesus screams to us in this passage here, but do you truly know me or do you just know about me? Do you know and experience me as the pre-existing God of all that you see and do not see the Lord of all? Or do you just know that in your head? Do you know and experience me 
as the incarnate one who came to earth for you personally, and that means something for you. Or do you just go, yeah, 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 I know what Christmas is about. Jesus became a man. Or do you know and experience me, Jesus says, deep in your soul as the divine forgiver of your sins? Or do you just theologically give a head nod to this idea of an atonement? In other words, do you know him? Or do you know just about him? Do you experience him in these areas outlined in Jesus' prayer to the Father? Or do you simply know some nice little doctrinal facts about him where you sing a song in church or read about him in your Bible, kind of check off your little theological list? I think it's a rather important distinction, don't you? It's the heart of Jesus' prayer here. What kind of knowledge, what kind of knowing do you have when it comes to any kind of life you hope to have in God? Brennan Manning was a uh, wonderful writer when he was alive, and uh, in his famous book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he addresses this issue head on. This is a, a great quote. Look at what he says. He says, my personal experience of God came not from the exegetes, the theologians, and the spiritual writers, but from sitting still in the presence of the living word and beseeching him to help me understand with my head and heart his written word. He says, sheer scholarship alone cannot reveal to us the gospel of grace. We must never allow the authority of institutions or leaders to replace the authority of knowing Jesus Christ personally and directly. And then he says this, most famous quote I think Brennan Manning ever had. He says, when we lack the primary experience of Jesus as the Christ, we become unconvicted and unpersuasive travel agents handing out brochures to places that we have never visited. <laughs> I love that because that describes at times even me the, 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 the absolute fakery, that's not a word, of our Christian experience, right? We're like $3 bills. We're like people who are handing out tracts to our friends saying, you need to believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And you're talking about a place that you've actually never been. You believe it in here and you go to church. But when it comes to Jesus actually changing your life, when it comes to him actually being your life, when it comes to the fact of his eternal existence, his incarnation and his atonement actually meaning something for you, actually changing you, actually taking you to a far away and good place. You're like a travel agent handing out a brochure to a place that you've never been. And I'm telling you folks, there's a lot of church people like that today. Brennan is right. And to be fair, I'm not down on you. I have been there. I've admitted to you that there are plenty of times my experience has lagged behind my theology. And so once we get this, once we realize that our Christian faith is about life, here and now, as well as eternal, that's verse 3, and that this life is found only in knowing him experientially with all of who we are, the only and obvious question that we need to now answer, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on this, is how do we actually experience Jesus this way, right? In other words, in what ways are we to know him and experience him so much so that we could actually look our friends in the face and say, man, I, I tell you, I, I found life. And it ain't my 401k. It, it's not in my grandchildren, as wonderful as they are. 
It's not in my nice house. It's not in my hobbies. All those are good things. I found life way beyond that. How do we do that? Believe it or not, the answers are contained right here in Jesus' prayer. I'm telling you, this is a profound prayer. They are found right in these opening five verses, and they are tied to these twin or these three ideas of Jesus' pre-existent nature, his incarnation, and his atonement. I want to show you what I mean. Here's the first way that we must know and experience Jesus, and that is that we experience Jesus, you ready for this, in his power. We experience him in his power. Now, in order to see this, let me ask you a very important question. When Jesus says that he eternally existed before the foundation of the world with the Father, what kind of Lord and Savior do you think he is describing here? In other words, when Jesus says that he is eternally existent, what does this tell us about who he is, so much so that if we choose to believe in him and get to know him, what we will experience in experiencing the eternally existent Son of God. And he actually gives us a clue to this in his prayer here when he says in verse 2 that he has been given authority over all flesh. So as the eternally existent Son of God, he has authority over everything that has been made, meaning power and control over all of God's creation. The Bible tells us in other places, just trust me on this, that Jesus is both the agent of creation, everything has been made through him, as well as Lord over creation, all is sustained by him. And as a result of this, this is what Jesus would say in Matthew 28, some of his very last words on earth. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let that sink in a minute. All authority. So everything that could be given has been given to Jesus. And then he says, in heaven, which means everything outside of the physical earth, the heavenlies, in heaven and on earth. So it just about covers everything. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that if you want to have power in your life, especially for those areas that you lack power in, maybe your marriage, and maybe your parenting, your spiritual life, the emotions that seem to strangle you. What he's saying is, is that life is found in him, and the first thing he gives you as the eternally existent one who has authority over all is power. And this is why Paul the Apostle summed it up so neatly in 1 Corinthians 1.24 when he said, Christ, the power of God. He couldn't be more clear. Christ is the power of God. And so how do we have life in him? Well, we have life in him through the fact that he gives us power once we truly believe and trust in him and experience him as the eternally existent one. And again, at this point, some people say, well, how do I tap into that? Look, <laughs> you tap into that by, by giving up all these things around you that you're leaning on and trusting in, your money, your house, your own gifts and talents, as good as all those things are, but it's what C.S. Lewis calls second place things. So you put those things out of first place status into second place status, and you put Jesus as first place status and start leaning on him for everything. And as you do that, he says, you'll start to experience my power. 
And I'm telling you, you will experience his power in just about every area of your life. Our elders uh, once a month meet for our, our monthly elder meeting. Before that, we pray for people that are in need. The Bible says to do that in James 5.14. It says that if any one of you is sick, let him call the elders. And the prayer of faith will heal the person who is sick. We believe that around here. And we pray for people with cancer. We pray for people that have bad physical. We pray for people with marriage problems. And I can't tell you how many times we get notes back saying, let me tell you what God did. God did this, God did that. Why? Because Jesus is the one who wants to give us power. I experience power in my mind all the time. Now, I, I want to be careful I say this. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but as most of you know, I'm a, I'm a relatively intelligent person, right? I, I mean, I study the Word of God. I got an earned master's degree. I, I tend to rule my world with my mind. But you know what? I don't believe that my physical mind is enough to get me through all the darkness of this crazy, crazy world. And so even when I prepare sermons, I've told you guys this before, you know what I do every, I mean, I don't even, every time I sit down at my desk, even if I've taken a break and I come back, I, I, I breathe a prayer to God and say, God, may this be your words to your people. May this be empowered by your spirit. May the wisdom of this sermon come from you because if it doesn't, then it's just of the flesh and none of that matters. In other words, I beg God for power when I speak to you guys, that it's more about him than me. And I think many times he delivers on that. I've seen people experience power in their will to battle temptation and sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's a direct quote from the Bible. So right there, you have it, power in the midst of temptation. He gives us power to persevere and endure. Hebrews 10, 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who, who persevere to the end. He gives us power to that. He gives us even power just in the sense of his felt presence. And this is just simply a sampling gang. His power knows no bounds. It's available to us as ones who know him and find our life in him as we love and trust him more than anything else, as God, the eternal son. So we're going to move on right now, but let me ask you very quickly, do you know and experience his power? Because that's your barometer, that's the telltale sign of whether or not you're just giving lip service to him as the eternally begotten son of God versus actually experiencing him. If you've experienced his power, you're in that good place. Now, notice the second way that we experience Jesus, and this one's really going to blow you away, and this one's very encouraging, and that is that we experience Jesus in his empathy. We experience him in his empathy. So again, let me ask you a very important question. When Jesus says that he was sent to this earth here in verse 3, and again, theologians call that the incarnation, God becoming man, what do you experience as Jesus coming to earth? That's a really important question. In other words, we're going to celebrate that like ad nauseum all month long here at our church, right? We're going to sing songs about it, you know, in Bethlehem and the baby and the angels and the shepherds and all this stuff. And many of you get good feelings when we sing all those Christmas songs, and that's good and fine. Here's the really good question, though. What is it that you actually experience with Jesus having come into this world. What does the incarnation mean to you in your day-to-day -day world when it comes to how you know him? 
And again, you don't have to guess at this. The Bible gives us a really clear answer here, and you're going to like it because it all centers around this idea of Jesus becoming a man and now being able to empathize with you and me as human beings stuck in what Lewis calls the shadow land. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. This is how the author of the book of Hebrew made sense of this experience of the incarnation. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, meaning our belief and trust in him. Because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, double negative, do not, cannot. So we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet did not sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of needs. You know, the Bible, rightly so, uses you know, very flowery words to describe wonderful theological concepts that you and I need to, to experience let me just cut through all this right now. Here's what it's saying. Jesus gets it. He gets you. He gets what it's like to be a fallen human being, even though he himself never sinned. He lived among us with all the temptations and trials that we have. And watch this. He's the only person, only person ever in your life that can truly look you in the eye and say, I fully get it. You know, we do this all the time with each other, and I, and I try not to be a cynical here, but you guys know I'm a cynic, so you accept me that way. But I, you know, once in a while we'll hear somebody who's going through a difficult time, and, and somebody else at the table will look them in the eye, and they'll, so I'll pick up my friend Jim here, and they'll say, Jim, I, I, I fully get and understand what you're going through right now. And, and I don't do this because it would be so incredibly rude, but I want to say at that moment, uh, technically speaking, you don't. Technically speaking, you are a different human being. You are not God. You cannot fully understand what this dear person is going through. You can empathize, but you cannot fully get it because you're not in their skin. There's only one who can fully say that to you, and that's Jesus. He can say, I made you, I know you, I love you, I'm closer to you than you could ever be to yourself, and I fully get, because I've been to this dump, what you're going through right now. And I fully understand and empathize with you. Jesus gets it. And again, once you and I start to understand that, that our pain, discouragement, disappointment, hurt, rejection, even the trials and temptations we experience, that he understands that we start to experience Jesus in such a new way. Because we understand, we experience that, that, that he knows us. So again, once again, I ask you, do you experience that? I mean, some of you came in here today, Cactus, Northridge, Chapel, Venue. Man, you came in super beat up. Holidays are really tough for a lot of people. I was praying with a man before the service today who, who lost a child. And, and every time the holidays come, it's really hard. I get that for he and his wife. And again, we can do, only do so much for each other. But what you need to understand is that Jesus is there for you 24-7. He gets it. And the reason that he gets it is because he's been here and he's experienced the pain that you go through. And you don't think he understands, but he does in a way that could forever change the loneliness you feel. But you need to draw close. You need to lean in more on him than you've been doing and lean less on the other things you're leaning on. So we experience his power 
as the eternally reigning Son of God. We experience his empathy as the incarnate Christ. And then finally, and probably most life-altering, and yet this is an area where most Christians are still handing out brochures, we experience Jesus in his forgiveness. But we experience him in his forgiveness. Now, now let me blow you away, because I told you we're doing a deep dive in this passage here today. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, when Jesus says that he became incarnate, and then we looked at Hebrews and it says that his incarnation uh, has a wonderful benefit of him being able to empathize with us as, as, as human beings. Believe it or not, that is not the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth. Did you know that? In other words, he didn't come to this earth just so he could say, I get it, and empathize with us, though he does. No, the primary reason he came to this earth is to accomplish something. Give me a head nod, y'all remember that. He accomplished something, and that is the atonement for our sins, the work on the cross, without which you and I would still be stuck in our sins, separated from God for all of eternity, and as the Bible says in Ephesians 2.12, without hope and without God in this world. And so in keeping with the gist of that word gnosko, here's what you need to know. And this is where I worry about a lot of Christians today, is that this is not just some mental checklist thing that we need to do to say, yeah, 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 I know he died for my sins, like we learned that in Sunday school in second grade. At some point, that has to be felt by you. That has to be experienced by you. And some of you aren't going to like this because you're going to misunderstand what I'm about to say, but, but just hang with me here because it really does work this way. Nowhere does it become more relevant than the next time you sin. Amen? Some of you are going to sin before you leave the parking lot, so dial into this right now. Some of you are going to sin in the parking lot, so dial into this right now. You know, when we sin, the Bible says this in, in, the, in the book of Romans. It's a fascinating verse. I showed it to you a couple weeks ago. It says that the, the greater the sin that we commit, do you remember this? The greater the grace that he shows us. So there's a commensurate level to how much grace gives you, and this is where people misunderstand it, how much grace gives you, God gives you, to how much sin you have in your life. And he actually says, the more sinful among you, the greater I have to reach into your life with grace in order to forgive you. But then he says, don't worry, because if you believe in me and lean on me, I'm going to do it. So, so that is why you've met some people over the years who led a terrible, terrible, decadent life and then Jesus turned them around, and they're so radical about it. You ever met somebody like that? Like, there's like no stopping them. You're like, well, slow down, tiger, you know? And it's like, they ain't slowing down for nothing. Because all they know is this. They were bound for hell. They were mired in their sin. As the psalmist says, they were, they were stuck in that quagmire. And Jesus came along, and he put them on dry ground. And their life is now completely different. In other words, what they're saying to you is that they experienced his forgiveness. They know what it's like to feel forgiven in their soul. And here's what I worry about with many Christians today. I'm not sure every Christian really feels that. And the reason that you don't feel it, and again, I'm not going to harp on this. I did a couple weeks ago. Just rewind, get that sermon. It's hard to listen to, but you need to. The reason most Christians don't feel that is because they really don't know how sinful and messed up they are. Amen. It's hard to preach in Scottsdale. We all look so good. We got our good life bumper stickers on our cars and everything like that. The problem is God's not fooled. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's going on in your soul. Even if you've whitewashed the outside, remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? They're like whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside like a gravestone, but on the inside, they're kind of dead. 
See, there's Christians like that today where we've, we've whitewashed everything on the outside, but on the inside, we know it, we know it. We don't really experience his power. We don't really get that he empathizes us. And we certainly don't really feel forgiven because you don't think there's really much to forgive. <laughs> the reality is there is. There's a lot to forgive in your soul. There's a lot to forgive in my soul. And once you start to get in touch with that sin, and then you start to realize that he died on a wooden cross for you, and then he came to this earth for you. And that he gave everything for you so that you could feel forgiven on a regular basis. And I'm telling you, you're now tapping in to life. Life now that will take you into eternity. John would put it this way when he got excited about this idea of forgiveness of sins. He says if we confess our sins, meaning just tell God about them, get in touch with the fact that we really are messed up. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow. So that's why, and some of you are scandalized by this. You don't like it. That's why people can live a terrible life, have a deathbed confession, and you're going to see him in heaven. Because... If you truly repent and turn to Jesus, God says, I'm willing to wipe the slate clean. I'm willing to forgive. And some of you say, well, what if they don't mean it? Well, only God and them know that, right? That's not your business. I mean, I love that when people try to judge somebody else's heart. I don't know. I'm not God, thankfully. But here's what I do know, is that if they do really mean it, and again, God and them are the judge, the slate is wiped clean. And though you might feel scandalized about that, we call it a, a jailbed or a deathbed confession, you might feel scandalized by that. Here's the good news. God applies the same thing to your pathetic soul, amen? <laughs> God says when you finally get in touch with your sin and the things that you've grieved him about, that if you really mean it and believe and trust in him, he's gonna wipe the slate clean as well. And then for the first time in your life, you're gonna feel forgiven before God. And then you can say, man, I know him and I have life in him. And this first five verses of Jesus's prayer, you're knocking down like dominoes because you're saying, I got the power, I got the empathy and I got this feeling of forgiveness and man, I'm on my way to the races. And then the next three weeks that we're gonna talk about are gonna make total sense to you. But this is where it all begins. It begins with understanding why this Jesus came to this earth, understanding that he came for you, and understanding that he gave his life for you, and that if you've not yet embraced him, or if you think you've embraced him, but you, have ne you don't know anything about his power or his empathy or his forgiveness, man, you need to start all over again. <laughs> you need to trust him again today and believe in him anew and afresh today. And let's write the old stuff off the books Let's have our old life be done with us and our new life to begin in him now. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna close this in prayer and I'm gonna close this in a prayer for those of you who are ready to embrace him as Lord, as Savior, and watch this, as your very life, as your very life. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray right now. Father God, um, as you know, I spent the last couple of weeks in these few sentences of Jesus's, and it challenged even my own life. It made me ask questions, Father, like when was the last time I truly experienced your power break into this world, into my life? When was the last time I felt like in the midst of my discouragement and struggles and pain and even disillusionment that you get it and that you don't judge me for it, you empathize and love me nonetheless? When was the last time, Lord, I experienced this idea or not idea, this reality of your forgiveness deep in my soul 
And in the midst of feeling so guilty for something I said or did, I simultaneously feel cleansed and forgiven because of your atonement. God, these are the things that we need to wrestle with today. There are many of us who, Brennan Manning is right, we're, we're like travel agents handing out brochures to other people on places that we've actually never been to. And though we might believe the brochure, it's time we get on the bus or the plane and go there. And so Lord, today, as we close our time in prayer, we, we acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. We acknowledge he is the eternal Son of God existing before all creation. We acknowledge he was sent to this earth, written in history 2,000 years ago, and that he came for a purpose, not just to empathize, but to atone for our sins. And Lord, we don't just acknowledge that today. We embrace him. And Lord, we shun aside the things that we've been leaning on way too much, our own gifts, our own ingenuity, maybe even our family, all good things, maybe our money, all the things that we tend to lean on to give us security and confidence in life. We, we put those things aside in the second place status. And Lord, we put Jesus in first place. And we, we claim him, we believe in him, we experience him as Lord, as Savior, as our very life. And Lord, for those of us who have the courage to make that our prayer today, I pray that something would be different in us today. I pray that we might go out with a, a closeness to you and intimacy, having given our lives over to you, in which now, Lord, we are truly seated at the foot of the cross, waiting to do your will, to experience your power and your empathy and your forgiveness. Break into our lives, we pray. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.